We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to Soft Talk Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Joe Quinn, with my co-host, Liz Martin, hey. Neil Radley, and Pierre Lascaudron. Hi, everyone. Bonjour. This week, we're talking about the uh, historical great games of the global elite. And we, to deal with that subject, we will be talking with uh, Eric Wahlberg. Eric is a Canadian, an author, and a journalist who specializes in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Russia. He's a graduate of University of Toronto and Cambridge in economics, and he has lived in both the Soviet Union and Russia and then Uzbekistan as a UN advisor, writer, translator, and lecturer. He is a writer for the foremost Cairo newspaper, Al-Aram, and a regular contributor to Counterpunch, Dissident Voice, Global Research, Al Jazeera, etc. Um, Eric is also the author of uh, two books. One is called and that will maybe we focus on mostly this uh, the show is postmodern imperialism geopolitics and the great games and yeah so Eric is with us here today and he's sounds like to me in a way the best the best guy to talk about the kind of things we want to talk about here specifically uh, what's going on right now in uh, Eastern Europe and Russia so welcome to the show Eric thanks Joe all right so I suppose before we get into, I know your book and your most of your research, at least in, in your books, has been um, deals with you know the kind of history over the past maybe 100, 150 years, as the title of it suggests, uh, postmodern imperialism. Um, but what is your take on what the world has been kind of captivated by, or most, at least anybody who's been watching the news has been captivated by in recent weeks, uh, i.e. the situation in Ukraine. What, um, what's your take on what's been going on there? Yes, the Ukraine is, uh, uh, the Ukraine you said, uh, that, which Sorry, is an yeah. interesting s- slip, because uh, it used to be called, it's just like uh, uh, the, uh, the steppes uh, of Central Asia, it used to be just a region within Soviet Union, or before that, a region within the Russian Empire, or before mm-hmm. that, it was a region in a loosely uh, connected uh, group of uh, Slavic, uh, East, uh, Eastern Slavic states, which included uh, Belarus, uh, Ukraine, uh, we, which we call Ukraine as a state now, mm-hmm. and, and Russia. So it, it's interesting that uh, uh, we still in the back of our minds we think of it not as as a modern state but as uh, a region and uh, that is associated uh, on many levels culturally politically economically with its neighbors in and it used to be in a generally a a peaceful relationship with with its neighbors Uh uh, certainly the russian neighbors to to the east 
I've actually been uh, pulled up on that on, on Facebook of all places of uh, where I said the Ukraine and uh, a Ukrainian give me down a, hard. Give me a hard time about it, you know. Said it's well, Ukraine. I bet it was a Western Ukrainian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, yeah. The, we get right into the heart of of this uh, nasty little spot that's going on, but it, it's a tempest in a teapot in a way, and this whole business of the Ukraine or Ukraine. Uh, what what I, I mentioned that for, I wasn't to upbraid you. Uh, on the no. contrary, I still think in those terms because it's uh, a less politicized term. By getting rid of the, the the, what we're saying is Ukraine is an independent state, uh, as is France or U.S. or Russia. Uh, there's this... Uh, uh, Version, it's the surface view of, of what's going on. What you get in the mainstream media treats even uh, the Seychelles Islands or something like that as an independent state, uh, which is nonsense, of course. These uh, smaller states, uh, in fact, almost all the states today are not really states in, in the modern sense, modern meaning uh, the 20th century, 19th, 20th century, where uh, a country had its own foreign policy, where it had its own uh, national bourgeoisie that was uh, expanding, uh, developing national industry, uh, where, where its nationalism actually at times uh, um, spilled over into racism and uh, chauvinism, as we saw happened in uh, Germany. And as, of course, uh, not just Germany, but uh, Britain is... Uh, uh, the classic uh, chauvinist, uh, or actually England is a classic chauvinist state that was oppressing uh, you as an, uh, a person with Irish heritage must mm -hmm. certainly Don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> be, uh, be aware of this. So uh, what I did, um, I was very fortunate, in, if, if I can explain my, my own background, I, I guess instinctively rejected this whole world view from uh, from my early 20s and I uh, went and studied in Cambridge and uh, at that time I was still enamored with uh, Canada as part of a, a, a British empire, a kind of nice British empire. At that time it was uh, the Labour government under, uh, under Wilson. Uh, it was uh, a kind of soft conservative uh, heath. Uh, the wets, the so-called wet uh, conservatives who weren't nearly as bad as what happened later uh, and there was the uh, labor so uh, at that point uh, Britain uh, looked like it was not quite such a nasty uh, imperialist power but I mm -hmm. studied with Marxists there uh, Maurice Dobb and uh, Pierre Sraffa and Joan Robinson at Cambridge it was a very uh, heady period uh, when um, I remember f fondly uh, the uh, liberation of Vietnam I was celebrating at the uh, cafeteria with my fellow students in 1975 on May 1st. It was a very fitting uh, um, way to celebrate uh, the uh, workers' holiday. But uh, mm -hmm. as I as I became more aware of of what uh, the real underlying reality was, I realized uh, that Britain and uh, then the U.S. as the uh, chief imperial powers were very different kinds of states. They, they, are, they had their foreign policy, their independence, their national bourgeoisie, but countries like Canada had already lost whatever they had had and were becoming what uh, was 
called postmodern states by uh, uh, it was a term coined by a, a British a journalist uh, e- economist, I believe, but uh, no one had really picked up on this difference. Uh, the postmodern meaning that uh, they don't really have uh, the attributes of a modern state. They have no independent foreign policy. Uh, the national bourgeoisie is now being replaced by uh, multinational corporations. Uh, even the national currency is not uh, a credible currency. It's it's uh, something that fluctuates and can be destroyed very quickly by people like Soros or, or uh, uh, let's say the U.S. decides uh, it doesn't like you. Uh, it can there can be a run on your currency and your uh, whole economy will collapse. So uh, this is uh, just a, a very brief. Uh, overview, uh, and this is what became the basis of my book was postmodern imperialism. How, how does this this uh, surface view that uh, uh, where we see Ukraine, and then there is the real view where we see the Ukraine. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, we're just talking about states and the very idea of a state. Um, <clears throat> most people listening uh, will probably have heard of the term the clash of civilizations. Uh, that was coined by um, an American kind of political, I don't know, theorist or I don't know what he'd call himself, Samuel P. Huntington. Uh, and he was a guy who, whose writings and ideas kind of informed U.S. policy over the past, you know, I don't know, few, dec- <laughs> few decades. But he coined this term clash of civilizations and it's been, it's, it's got a lot of, uh, had a lot of attention since, since he coined it in terms of, you know, the modern world and Islam versus the West, etc., and um, he also coined this term Davos man, which was described these people, these elite who go to Davos every year, I think it is, uh, kind of Bilderberger type uh, groups that get together and discuss how they're going to make more and more money this year. And um, he said, this guy, Samuel P. Huntington, uh, who seems to be quite well informed about, about these things, said that, um, that this global elite that meet every year at Davos, for example, all the Bilderbergers or anybody else you care to ma- mention, have little need for national loyalty. They view national boundaries as obstacles that thankfully are vanishing, and they see national governments as residues from the past whose only useful function is to facilitate the elite's global operations. Now, that's not a conspiracy theorist saying that. That's some guy who is very much in the kind of policy-making camp of the, of the, <clears throat> of the American government. Uh, what, I mean, does that, do you see that as, would you agree with him, uh, Eric? But that's where we are in terms of statehood these days? Absolutely. And uh, you are a member of the, uh, you could say, the uh, uh, natural conclusion of that whole process of internationalization was the creation of the uh, European Union and to bring all of the states uh, into one organization where they can be monitored and to bring all these postmodern states, because even Britain has no independent foreign policy anymore, as we saw under Tony Blair, uh, uh, when the, uh, um, Britain became a, a, um, a very sordid uh, and disreputable uh, adjunct mm-hmm. to uh, the U.S. in its uh, plots around the world. And uh, I'm just looking for, uh, there's a very nice quote by uh, uh, the president of the EU, uh, a, a Belgian, a poor Belgium, 
Uh, let's oh. see now. Yes, uh, the EU President Herman von Rompuy, uh, who said that the time of homogeneous nation states is over. The belief that countries can stand alone is a lie and an illusion. So uh, often it's very important to, to know what these people are thinking because they often express the underlying uh, logic of uh, what's happening in the world today. So Huntington most definitely uh, also put uh, his finger on, on uh, Islam as the, the new Soviet Union. Uh, he was writing this, I believe, in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, would you say you know, that, when, um, that that idea about nation states, I mean, we're just giving two quotes here from people who, who are in the know and in a position to direct kind of government policy and the policy of the American Empire uh, and the European Union, for example, and they've just said that nation states are a thing of the past. Do you think that runs counter to the general perception of the average person in any of these nation states, I mean, my my impression is that people would be quite alarmed if they thought that that was really where they were trying to push things. Well, you see, another part of that quote uh, from uh, Huntington was that uh, it's a national national governments are a residue. You said, and that's yeah. uh, very true from the empire's point of view. And what is the uh, uh, the the surface view? We see nationalism. We have flags. We go to the Olympics. Uh, uh, we like to think we're proud of uh, being a Canadian or an Irishman. So all that we really have left of this uh, modern state is this sense of, of entitlement, uh, which is generally uh, in the past has been really just an excuse for racism uh, or, or uh, at best uh, just a, a kind of chauvinism. Nationalism itself, the nation state itself was born in imperialism. Uh, prior to the 16th century, uh, the, 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 there were kingdoms, there were shifting alliances, but uh, there was no really national economy. Uh, there was no taxation. Uh, you know, there was a king that was uh, basically trying to rape and pillage uh, other kingdoms or even his own uh, subjects. But uh, it, it, it really, we, when we think of the modern state, it's something that was born in the whole process of establishing a standing army, uh, navy, uh, which would then uh, uh, launch wars uh, uh, of uh, conquest around the yeah. world to uh, basically steal and oppress other nations. So, so you think that, it's, that, not, that's, it's not sorry? such a bad thing then? You, 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 you would say that it's not such a bad thing then, this move well, to I'm, abolish nations? Well, I'm trying to just states. understand. Uh, what's happening, I, I think uh, until we really understand all of that surface, what's happening underneath, uh, the good and bad of uh, industrialization, development, globalization, we can't really come to any conclusions. Uh, but uh, what I would say is that uh, this is also, I, I, I came to understand this when I was writing uh, my book, um, Postmodern Imperialism, that that Hobson, if you know the great uh, 19th century writer, he was the uh, first to really coin terms like imperialism and uh, to un analyze them in a modern uh, sense under capitalism. And he, uh, uh, there's a wonderful quote, I, I, take, me a couple, uh, take me a minute to find it so I can't quote it exactly from my book, but it's in my book, I urge people to, 
to uh, I think you will find lots of uh, tasty morsels. But he uh-huh. uh, said that uh, nationalism uh, really just uh, arose as a chauvinism based on uh, this conquest. So the the average Joe, uh, excuse me, <laughs> the average Brit, uh, Bruce or whatever in in uh, the, out in the, let's say Manchester or someplace in the 19th century. Uh, he would see the flag waving. He would hear uh, Cecil Rhodes has just uh, conquered another huge chunk of Africa in the name of Britain. And uh, the, you would stand up at your schools and you would sing God Save the Queen. And mm. uh, this was when nationalism really arose, was in the 19th century. And it was a way to dupe the, uh, uh, the, the poor, exploited working class, give them a sense of uh, a false sense of uh, of uh, self-respect because you're a Brit, you're a white mm-hmm. uh, and you are better than the wogs out there and uh, if you want to and you've got a little bit of savvy if, you're, if you can read and write and are, are ambitious you can join the Navy you can travel the world uh, you can go and kill, you meet people and kill them, that, that was a nice uh, ad for the US Army someone had made a uh, a, a joking ad, but also, or else you could join the the uh, foreign service. You could go and you could uh, 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 sleep with uh, black women. Uh, you know, have them as servants. Even though you're you, you yourself are uh, a nobody in Britain, you can go and become a somebody in the empire. Uh, the so white man's how, burden. How, That's the white it, man's it, burden. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a very hard thing to do, but someone's got to do it, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, so once I started to realize what imperialism was all about, I became uh, electrified and aghast. You know that it, it's not the uh, uh, the benign kind of imperialism that uh, we were taught in school. Uh, in Canada about the wonderful pink uh, map where the the uh, uh, sun never sets on the British Empire when I was growing up in the 50s and uh, studying in the 60s. That was the way we were told imperialism was a good thing. Once mm-hmm. I realized what imperialism was all about, it uh, set my uh, agenda for the next, uh, you know, the rest of my life. I have to help expose what it really is and uh, where it stands today and what kind of imperialist games are being played. Well, I I have a little bit of a question because I I was reading your book and you have this kind of separation of like GG1 and GG2, you know, this great game. Mm -hmm. And um, getting back to the situation in Crimea, I mean, is this just a continuation of what's currently going on? Is it some sort of new move? I mean, is it kind of as you described this this turning a pawn into a queen situation with uh, with Russia is is this you know Russia coming into its own? I mean, what's kind of going on there? Is it just a, a big theater uh, with this grab and this so-called quote unquote grab or so, quote unquote annexation of Crimea? You know, what is is that all about? We well, see this could would never have been a problem 30 or 40 years ago if we were still in the second great game. Just for the listeners, just quickly, uh, I, I came ac- upon this uh, um, categorization because I realized there were very distinct periods in modern imperialism. The classical imperialism of late 19th century 
very quickly broke down. World War I uh, was uh, all these imperial powers, Germany, Britain, uh, U.S. sort of standing back a bit, but it was, it was uh, looking for its piece of uh, cake. And Japan, uh, Italy, all of these countries were fighting over the remaining colonies, and uh, they wanted to uh, have as many as possible. Well, uh, they bankrupted themselves in the process. They sparked uh, a communist revolution in Russia, and uh, what slowly came into uh, into uh, being was a new kind of uh, logic on the uh, uh, because it was no longer various imperialist powers fighting among themselves to divide up the world. It was uh, defeated. Uh, all of them were basically defeated, including Britain, because it was bankrupted and uh, by the war. And all, the only one that survived was the U.S. Uh, uh, to come in and uh, pick up the pieces. That's when the U.S. became uh, a real imperial power, and it was controlling all of the others. Eventually, by World War II, the U.S. was in complete control, and it was fighting the communist enemy. So there was united imperialism. Before it was squabbling imperialist powers. Now you've got a united uh, empire fighting the uh, uh, communists. So w when that was the case, uh, it, uh, you, Crimea was uh, part of the Soviet Union. There was, and that's why uh, Khrushchev could so cavalierly uh, give it, uh, I mean, it looks nicer on a map to just say, okay, that's part of the Ukraine, because it, it uh uh, it, it sits right on, on, on the underbelly of Ukraine. But, uh, in fact, it was always uh, a part of Russia, uh, culturally, strategically. Uh, Catherine the Great uh, uh, that basically took over uh, the, the uh, Crimean Khanate, in uh, the late 19th, late 18th century, uh, from uh, from Turkey, from the Ottoman uh, mm -hmm. Caliphate, so it was never. And at that time, there was no such thing as Ukraine. There was the Ukraine. There was the area of the Black Soil where the, where the kind of uh, rural uh, Slavs spoke uh, a, a dialect that was perfectly intelligible to any Russian, but. Uh, it, it was a bit like, well, in fact, I, I, I need subtitles when I watch uh, Scottish movies, or, or uh, I think Irish is uh, uh, generally more uh, understandable to a North American. It's been more, but uh, if you get a, a Scottish brogue, I, I, I can't understand that at all, and I'm, you know, a, a quite literate uh, person who's read a great deal. So uh, uh, Ukraine was uh, always... Uh, uh, part of the Eastern Slavic, uh, uh, what would you call it? I, I don't want to call it a nation because it was the Russian Empire. We just call it the Russian demographic. Empire. Demographic. It's kind of like demographic. Yes. Okay. So, so uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, all of a sudden, uh, there's this. You could say that what we have now, which I call Great Game Three, is in fact a reversion to Great Game One in a sense, but it's so mixed up uh, with other elements that because of that uh, fight against uh, the communists, uh, uh, um, communism, uh, all of these other countries were subsumed and became part of uh, the American empire, uh, which is not a direct, they're not directly 
controlled. You don't have Obama phoning Merkel and saying, you have to do this. What you have mm -hmm. is uh, international institutions like the Monetary Fund set up after World War II, which mm -hmm. were part of the second great game, uh, World Bank, uh, even the United Nations. Uh, these were institutions that were set up to stabilize uh, a united mm -hmm world empire, uh, which was in a standoff against uh, uh, an alternative, uh, which was socialism, communism at that time. So you have these institutions now uh, fully uh, controlled by the empire, and uh, it's a very different uh, ballpark, if you want, uh, game right. than uh, that great game won. And something like Ukraine uh, and Crimea, it was obvious that that was... If the U.S. moves in, which it did, and uh, uh, destabilized uh, the Ukrainian government as part of uh, its own expansion eastward, uh, the EU and NATO, these were uh, the U.S. is just waiting for the right opportunity to pursue these. Of course, uh, uh, when when authority collapses in Ukraine, uh, the, I, I would have, as a Crimean, I would have jumped at the chance to. Uh, uh, abandon that uh, sinking ship and to uh, uh, make an alliance with uh, the uh, uh, with my brothers. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're a Slav, Eric. Um, yes. One, just from a geographic point of view, I mean, that maybe there's a question that people maybe don't understand or is a bit uh, confusing for people. Since, as you said, Crimea sits on the kind of underbelly there of of Ukraine. Uh, how can the Russians say that that part of Ukraine is Russian when it's further away from Russia than the rest of Ukraine? I mean, Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union, so why isn't the rest of Ukraine also seen as part of Russia? You know what I'm saying? Just in terms of the distances, Crimea is further from Russia than Ukraine. Well, not not much, and in fact, uh, it, it borders. Uh, the Russians are busy completing a bridge, which has actually already started. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, a causeway across the strait, the narrow strait that uh, that joins Russia to the to uh, the Crimea. Uh, uh -huh. There's the Sea of Azov, uh, so uh, they uh, are finishing that bridge now, and uh, it, it really it it uh, um, borders on Russia. And uh, of course, yeah. it, it, just the way you phrase that question, uh, part of the Ukraine, it was never part of something called Ukraine. It was uh, the Khanate. It was, it was a, uh, an independent, autonomous uh, uh, region of the Ottoman Caliphate until right, the late okay. 18th century. And then it was uh, incorporated, it was conquered by Catherine the Great, uh, who was Tsarina of the Russian Empire, and it was incorporated into the Russian Empire. had nothing to do with uh, Ukraine. Uh, and in fact, uh, there are various pockets in uh, the, the Ukraine that Odessa, they, they, it was a very, very much a Russian Jewish uh, port. And mm -hmm. uh, also the eastern Ukraine, uh, uh, Donetsk and Kharkov, uh, uh, these are all Russian cities right. primarily. They're, and uh, uh, yeah, I don't know so, what's yeah. going to happen with East Ukraine. Uh, it's it's uh, very messy now uh, because uh, if the uh, new Ukrainian government be gets more and more uh, chauvinistic and anti-Russian, um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I wouldn't even know what to advise uh, 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 Putin uh, at this point. Do you 
do you think that that anti-Russian sentiment is really shared by the people? Because it does sound like there is a there's a there's not so much a minority, but a, a large contingent of people in Ukraine who uh, don't seem to be anti-Russian. Uh, well, yes, yeah, especially it's an east-west divide. Uh, in fact, the, uh, all the elections uh, for over the last 20 years, uh, there was this euphoria, I suppose, with the collapse of the Soviet Union because of, well, I mean, most people regret that now, but at the time I was living there, and I remember that, that people were excited at the idea of, uh, more goodies from the West, or uh, there was a kind of a glorified view of, of the West at that point. So, uh, um, and, and of course, West Ukraine uh, was—it uh, was actually part of Poland uh, before uh, World it, in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two. It was part of Poland, uh, but prior to that, it was part of uh, Russian Empire. So you see this. These borders have changed, and the allegiance uh, of various people—it's uh, a very confused situation. So, uh, if you're a native Russian speaker, you're pro-Russia. If you're uh, if, if you're from the West Ukraine and you have a very thick uh, uh, Polish-Ukrainian uh, dialect that you speak that's not really intelligible to a Russian, of course you you have more sympathy with Poland or with. Uh, mm. uh, European Union, or uh, just you want to, there's a chauvinism uh, of that whole region that uh, was uh, under the Nazis. They were very uh, pro-Nazi, and uh, uh, in the sense that uh, it was a chauvinism. Uh, I look at Nazism as a kind of racial doctrine that we are the best. It was a kind mm-hmm. of Nazism gone mad, and I think that uh, that uh, they encouraged this. They encouraged it among the Croats, uh, uh, Croatians, and uh, in uh, Yugoslavia. They encouraged it in uh, the Ukrainians in the Western Ukraine. So, uh, in pursuit of of their own mini uh, fascist uh, groups, and you can see that they're quite uh, alive and well. They they were the backbone of this coup in uh, in the Ukraine or Ukraine, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So basically, what, really what you're saying is that it's, uh, the situation in Ukraine is quite complex and it's based on demographics and it's a big country. There's a history there of association with, uh, obviously, of being part of the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. even going back further further that. So it's much more complex than the simple, the, the kind of simplistic rhetoric and the propaganda that we're hearing in the press, which is that it's all about the Ukrainians wanting to join Europe, the EU, or it's about Putin trying to... Retake, yeah. uh, reestablish the Soviet Union. That's what they're saying. That Putin is trying to reestablish the Soviet Union. Uh, he, he is uh, pursuing his customs union, a Eurasian, a Eurasian Union, to try and uh, prevent the the uh, U.S. from just really running roughshod over all of the territory. And, of course, the U.S. ultimately has in mind the breakup of Russia itself because Russia is a big federation. And uh, there are lots of uh, ethnic groups, a lot of the Muslim, uh, too. The, about 15% of, of Russia, of the Russian Federation, is Muslim. So uh, the, the U.S. has lots of different levers that it can well, and I just noticed news today, um, State Department, whatever, said uh, we're now going to turn our attention more to Central Asian republics to protect mm-hmm. them from Russia. So, I mean, all this is uh, uh, just, uh, that's what it says on the surface. What they're saying is 
we're going to uh, forget about the uh, horrendous human rights uh, atrocities of Uzbekistan, the Karimov. Uh, we'll uh, just go right back in and, uh, um, you know, provide the necessary bribes uh, to keep our, uh, put our troops back in and uh, to keep our snoops uh, on the ground and uh, mm-hmm. waiting for further instructions. So, Well, yeah. if you could respond to, there's a, I'm going to give you a quote here, something that uh, the NATO Sec- Secretary General, Anders Falk, <laughs> or <laughs> a bad word, <laughs> Uh, Anders Anders Poe Anders Poe Rasmussen warned on Sunday that Russia's government was flouting the principle that every state is sovereign and free to choose its own fate. If you had a chance to respond to him, what would you tell him? Well, he's absolutely correct, but uh, what uh, what he's saying is that if what he should he should put it in a hypothetical if. Uh, all these states were independent and sovereign, then uh, Russia would be flouting their sovereignty. But they're not sovereign. Uh, in fact, as I said, and, and as um, Rumpuy and uh, uh, the, the quote of, from him, that the, the whole idea of independent states is uh, a sham. That mm-hmm. they're not independent. So you see, what uh, the weak uh, postmodern Ukraine for the last 20 years, it's been uh, uh, a fighting ground for uh, this postmodern uh, uh, great game. And uh, uh, as I let, let me just um, uh, look. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, okay. Um, the uh, um, what I wanted to do is just quote from uh, um, well okay I, I can't find the, the actual quote but you see uh, um, uh, uh, Russia has uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, these uh, states became. Uh, theoretically independent and what that meant was that uh, uh, the U.S. could try and uh, implant its version of uh, democracy which m- which means uh, that you have a private economy largely uh, so that, that uh, you have open borders uh, 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 a currency that is is uh, um, negotiable uh, against the US dollar uh, and uh, you have um, you have free uh, press but uh, free meaning um, uh, privately controlled press as well so uh, it, when the Soviet Union collapsed you you had basically uh, the, the powerful West moving in uh, with its and, and you have NGOs non-governmental organizations that come in and uh, try and uh, pressure and provide funds and uh, grants to different people and groups to support uh, the Western agenda of uh, electoral democracy. But uh, elections, uh, Western style, are are largely controlled by money uh, and uh, are within the... uh, the, the uh, rules of the game, the rules of the game meaning that there can be no uh, uh, 
attempt to buck the empire. You you can't uh, nationalize banks uh, you, or, or any industry. Uh, you can't put exchange controls or you can't uh, encourage uh, your own local, uh, let's say, manufacturing, uh, that all of this is taken out of any government's hands. So, uh, <coughs> in fact, governments are, are really, as uh, Huntington said, they're uh, residual. National governments are a kind of residual. They don't really control very much at all anymore. All they can do is agree with the empire or be quiet. They can abstain at uh, the United Nations if, they, if they're really brave. But uh, otherwise, you, uh, um, you approve of the empire's... Uh, and if you don't, then you get subverted, which is... Uh, see, uh, Russia was supposed to become one of these postmodern states, under Yeltsin, it was moving in that direction, but uh, all of, uh, soon um, even the, the Russian uh, oligarchs and that began to uh, realize that they were giving away everything uh, from, and, mm. and uh, eventually that came to an end. And that's how uh, it's interesting that uh, Putin uh, became a kind of symbol for that uh, uh, effort to uh, resist this. Postmodern uh, role that Russia was supposed so, to play. So, so following that line, though, I mean, kind of, would you say that that the governments of the world are kind of being affected by the same disease as just about everyone else? That this sort of elite bankers and money men, IMF type individuals, these, these sort of, I guess you could call them power broker, power capitalists, that mm-hmm. that nations now have become infected governments and politicians and all this stuff they've become infected with the same kind of disease they they are a residue they're they're kind of you know i don't know what the word for being puppet sounds a little bit too too extreme but perhaps a little bit apt that the mm-hmm. governments now are just sort of functionaries functionaries in the empire yeah yeah to 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 facilitate the corporatocracy or or the financialocracy or whatever it is uh-huh, and uh, I think the uh, Irish government showed this uh, uh, after the breakdown. A country like Iceland was able to, uh, I guess maybe the it's just enough removed or else it was, uh, uh, it, it, it was strong or its, its crisis was so extreme that, uh, and it's also smaller. It's interesting that uh, a, a very small island population like that was able to maintain uh, some shreds of, of its past uh, modern uh, s- status, whereas uh, uh, Ireland just, uh, as far as I understand, the government just bowed completely to the uh, EU directives and uh, the bankers' directives. So, so uh, yeah, and the, the Canadian government, it's very it's pathetic to see how uh, the current leaders, all three parties are basically the socialists, the liberals, and the conservatives. They're really all just variations on this theme of uh, how can we best serve the empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, maybe one question or two. In your book, you describe those three great games basically uh, geopolitical games with game one, two, and three attached to specific periods of time with specific objectives and a specific dominating force, empire. Although you show that uh, 
there are some things that transcend this great game. Um, for example, this notion of Rimland and Heartland and uh, the fundamental of uh, geopolitics. So could you explain a, a bit more about that, Eurasia in particular? Yes, the, uh, Britain, uh, being the first empire, was uh, uh, the uh, Rimland. Rimland meaning uh, that uh, it uh, works around the edge of, of uh, and, and it's a naval power, or, or it's a maritime power. Whereas Heartland, uh, Russia was the classic Heartland power that it is uh, the uh, at the center of the Eurasian landmass and that it, it it had a very different history uh, of, of of imperialism as because it was expanding in a more or less natural way uh, uh moving outward uh, to uh, what its natural limits would be would be geographically the uh the sea uh so Br britain was able to um, expand because of, of its navy and its the technology that allowed the uh, maritime expansion, and that's how it so rapidly uh, became the world imperial power because it was able to move quickly all around the world and uh, uh, through its military uh, might uh, basically capture most of the world and its grasp. Whereas Russia uh, was uh, a slower expanding. Uh, power in in the original great game so those uh that um geopolitical uh, uh emphasis was very important in the in the first great game but as as technology it developed and with air power and uh um satellites uh and now uh, telecommunications that is so rapid and once you have set up these international institutions in uh, the post-World War II period uh, that all operate electronically uh, th this geopolitical uh, need for uh, conquest uh, sh uh, abated or it should have abated when, when we look at the wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq it, it looks very much like what was going on 150 years ago? So it's uh, it's puzzling in a way, and and actually this is the uh, great uh, debate, if you could say, going on within the imperial establishment in the U.S. Uh, someone like Obama represents a kind of liberal uh, side of uh, trying to use these institutions, to use NGOs, uh, uh, to use uh, culture. Uh, the uh, American mass culture, etc., to to shape and and mold the uh, world opinion, versus the uh, more uh, hardcore uh, um, flag waving Republicans that, uh, uh, which was the Bush, let's invade or uh, bomb, bomb, bomb Iran, the the famous uh, uh, McCain. Uh, so so you've got these two. Uh, branches uh, of the imperial establishment are basically fighting it out and uh, so, so, so that's the basis of today's great game and again that's why uh, it's it is different than great game one in great game one there were there was the British uh, 
culture and bringing uh, the white man's burden, bringing culture to the natives, that was definitely there. But it wasn't nearly so important uh, and it wasn't uh, so nearly so highly developed uh, also with the uh, financial institutions like the IMF as we have today. So uh, and the possibility that that's what uh, people like Huntington and then uh, Soros uh, their vision is a more liberal one of using the cultural uh, soft power, as I talk about in my book, versus the hard power. I mean, you still mm-hmm. need the hard power, but uh, you just keep it as a uh, keep it inside a velvet glove, uh, mm-hmm. and only bring it out when absolutely necessary. So, um, you know, back to this kind of this this heartland thing. So. Oh, yeah. Neil's got something to say, sorry. No, no, I'm glad you mentioned it. I just want to clarify something for, for listeners. The Heartland Theory was first brought up by Halford Mackinder, um, and uh, as Eric's just been describing, it, it's, a, it's sort of a formula for the way the British Empire 150 years ago uh, would see the world and then take action to take it, basically. And it it was neatly summarized by the author himself, Halford Mackinder. He said, who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world. Mm. Now, two things strike me there. First, who rules East Europe? That is a primary geostrategic consideration. Now, think of what's going on right now. Exactly. The second thing is, who the hell thinks like that? Well, no, uh, there's a 150 precedent. years ago. <clears throat> there's a president. These these guys are are, ch- are playing chess essentially. That's what they're doing. Um, that's the basic strategy of chess: control the center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although, again, that is as you say, 150 years ago, or, or not quite that long ago, but uh, more 19th century mentality. Uh, whereas today, the some of that logic is uh, uh, less uh, is less uh, um, compelling. Applicable. Be- uh, well, because of the uh, um, the the, ex- the extent to which the world already is united in terms of U.S. dollar as reserve conser- currency, uh, international banking system basically operating. Uh, you could say the uh, the uh, Iraq war and uh, the invasion of Libya, uh, these were mopping up operations where the world bankers still didn't have control of local currency. Uh, that's a very cynical view. I mean, there were other uh, aspects of, of uh, that, too. Also, the Palestinian the issue of Palestinian uh, struggle that uh, uh, Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein was uh, supporting. So, uh, the, again, it's complex, and there still is a certain geopolitical logic, but uh, it's not quite so um, compelling as it was, I would say, 120 years ago. But if we go back to 120 years ago, for example, when McKinder was saying this, and people like him were, you know, geostrategists were, were looking at the world, or even before that, maybe, uh, during the, you know, the height or the heyday of the, the British Empire, um, I mean, it seems to me that there were a certain group of people at a certain point in time, probably starting with the, with the British, who did look at the world 
at some point and say, we want to control it all. And they start to spread their empire and their influence around the world. And we today are living with that legacy because that control has remained, obviously. It's changed with the times, it's technology changed, etc. But the fact is that the only reason there can be an empire, an American empire today, really, is because it's standing on the shoulders of the British. Well, and uh, it's also relevant, very relevant today in the sense that uh, the uh, borders that were, the artificial borders that were created in this first game, the the way the squares were divided up on the uh, chessboard, uh, they, they were often arbitrary. Sometimes they were uh, very craftily made to encourage conflicts between tribes uh, and uh, to, um, or, or else to pacify the French, the British were uh, giving the French this and the Italians that. So there were so many um, irrational factors involved in creating these borders that that uh, then became fixed and which are today causing uh, um, problems into eternity. In a sense, mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, we, we have to move towards a more borderless world ultimately because those borders that we have are... Uh, unless they're sea coasts or yeah. mountain ranges, they're uh, generally quite arbitrary, and they yeah. are causing. They were produced by the imperialists for uh, arcane reasons, which no longer have any uh, logic at all, except to create chaos. So, exactly. uh, to, it's to make to make sure that they're. I mean, the, the British, when they kind of carved up countries or invaded countries, and then carved them up, and then after the. First World War and, uh, you know, redefined borders. They did that uh, specifically. uh, It could be said that they did it to make sure that there would never be any kind of unified power in any specific geographic region. And therefore, Mm -hmm. uh, that facilitates uh, the people who came after them, the Americans, to continue to exert their influence because these states are not viable, essentially. They're not... uh, and they're designed that way. The point is that they were designed that way from the very beginning. Well, there's, there's a precedent mm-hmm. for that. I mean, it's a, if I can't have it, no one can kind of mentality. When, mm-hmm. when, when these people realize that they can't really or have a, a great deal of difficulty completely dominating the world, uh, or they just want to prevent anyone else from rising up. And you see, there's the transition. That was great game one. And then uh, with the collapse of uh, most of the empires, the U.S. taking control, they were able to basically uh, move their currency into all of uh, the countries, all of the colonial world. Well, except uh, that part which was uh, uh, socialist and looking to Soviet Union. So, and with that collapse, now uh, in a sense we do have a borderless world, a borderless for. For, inter- for businessmen and bankers, uh, for, but not borderless for actual people. It's very difficult, to, as I realize now, it was much easier for me to travel and live in another country uh, 30 <coughs> years ago. Today, it's almost impossible for uh, someone that just wants to uh, understand the world or that has uh, alt- uh, altruistic motives. Uh, you, you can't really travel and live abroad unless you're a banker or working for a multinational corporation mm-hmm. or uh, working in, in uh, embassies abroad, mm-hmm. protecting the interests of those multinational workers, which is what mm-hmm. embassy workers uh, unashamedly do. They, mm-hmm. they do very little for, for uh, people like you or, or me 
who might be caught, uh, you know, I know some Canadians that were in jail in Egypt, and uh, the Canadian government did virtually nothing uh, mm-hmm. except when they were screamed at loudly and uh, became embarrassed and, and tried to help a little bit. Um, Eric, I'm going to check to see. We might have a caller on the line here. Okay. Hi, do we have a caller yes, on the line? Hi. Yes. Do you have a, what, what's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, my name is Charles from Missoula, Montana. Hi, Charles. Welcome. Do you have a comment hey there. or question? I just, wanted to, I just wanted to inject. I hope that you guys will cover this uh, conversation. Hello, Eric, uh, fellow Canadian. But anyway, Hi. Uh, <laughs> I just uh, hope that you cover where this is all going because I just uh, heard an interview. He's like a I don't, gold mule or gold jackass or something. I forget his title. But he was talking about where this is going with the uh, Russians, the Chinese, you know, the IMF money is, is crashing, uh, you know, with all the derivatives and everything. And a uh, uh, critical part of what's going on now is the energy deal uh, in the Soviet Union, of course, supplying Europe and what have you. And it sounded like from this guy's talk that eventually Russia and China are going to get together with Yuan or however you say that, and it's going to get out of the U.S. petrodollar. And the whole game's going to change. And that was that was. I just wanted to interject that and hope you guys cover that to some degree. Some degree. Well, uh, yes, sure. uh, good good point. That's exactly what's uh, w- where things are headed. Yeah. And uh, the U.S. it's walking a tightrope. The more it pushes Russia and China uh, uh, in terms of uh, trying to control their uh, own they are modern states like the US they still have their foreign policy they still have a currency that means something they still have a national bourgeoisie to some extent although uh, it's very much internationalized and both are very much prey to uh, pressures from international bankers but they're not completely under uh, imperial control so so the uh, US is playing a, a very dangerous game they can Push Russia and China. Prim- primary, let's just focus on them, Russia and China. Although this goes for Iran and Brazil and uh, exactly. uh, many other countries, uh, and India as well. But if we take Russia and China as, as uh, the kind of examples, the more the U.S. pushes them, uh, the more it pushes them to uh, undermine this international system. Now, you, it's not quite so cut and dry because uh, right. China has uh, trillions of dollars of uh, U.S. Uh, government securities. And if the U.S. dollar collapsed overnight, uh, then China would be severely uh, uh, hurt and its own economy would uh, would not crash completely because they still have a lot of national control. They still have a national economy. And the same with Russia. The, the, both of those countries have... Uh, to a certain extent, uh, the remnants of um, a socialist planned uh, economy that could maintain their uh, um, the, maintain their their economies and allow a rebuilding, but it would be a huge <coughs> transition. So no one really wants uh, to the U.S. dollar to collapse completely, except well, perhaps Iran. <laughs> Even <laughs> Iran uh, uh, certainly has uh, uh, huge debts and uh, uh, dollar holdings, and uh, it needs to sell its petrol. And uh, there's a lot of dancing around uh, uh, delicately these these issues. But uh, 
I, I, we would like the dollar to collapse, perhaps, but uh, <laughs> that's because we see through it completely and we don't have much to lose. But these uh, other uh, countries, if they're officials or if they're, they're um, you know, billionaires or oligarchs or, who are controlling the shot, they're not quite so keen. So, so yeah, you're right. That is the where things are headed. Uh, and uh, the more chaos the U.S. encourages, uh, the more likely it is to precipitate its collapse. But uh, you see, that's the whole role of someone like Obama, was to move in and reassert U.S. Uh, imperial power as a soft power. And uh, Russians, Chinese, everyone likes Obama. He, it was a brilliant choice to put him there because it's slowing down this disintegration. But uh, something like Ukraine and Crimea, you can see how uh, a crisis can erupt, or Egypt, uh, that things aren't going the way the U.S. would like in Egypt either. Or, so uh, no, no one really, can, uh, no one's controlling all the moves. This is where the, the analogy with the chess game does break down, because uh, you know nothing's cut and dry. The, uh, right. the playing board uh, shifts, uh, and uh, um, the, even some of the players change. So uh, it, it, it the analogy only goes so far. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean it's a, it's just uh, I think that it's definitely these two pinnings of the the IMF derivatives wash in the world and and energy. And also that Russia is close to Europe, and uh, Europe needs Russia's energy or Iran's energy or whatever. And it just seems this is the way it's going, and that the only thing that scares me is a wounded animal, which I see the U.S. being now. Mm -hmm. They have no real economy. The only thing they have is weapons. Yeah. You know, yeah. are they going to, you know, that's, uh, I'll take, I'll listen off the air. Thanks, guys. Okay. All right. But, uh, Good point. I agree with you fully. It's a very dangerous time that we live in. Yeah, thanks. I'll listen up there. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, those weapons are, are completely produced in America. A lot of them are, you know, the chipboards bought from so-and-so in Taiwan and stuff like that. So even the mass weapon-producing situation in America is, is not really such a strong point for them because they outsource so much of their uh, mechanical production. So, I mean, in the end, uh, if, 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 if... Yeah, well, uh, they've kind of tied it up in such a way that that's the result of empire, you know, where they're... America isn't producing anything really of much value. It's assembling right. a lot of things, and in terms of weapons, it's buying a lot of stuff, let's say, from from Asia for component parts for its weapons mm -hmm. and stuff. So, I mean, the result of I that mean, kind of globalization is that we're all in it together. If we go down, everybody goes down, you know? <laughs> yes, and that's, that's, exactly. That's, that's a kind of version of the kind of exactly. MAD, mutually assured destruction, destruction right. except it's not nuclear weapons anymore, it's economy. Yeah, basically. Exactly. And Eric explains that in his book right. uh, very well, simple, in simple terms. It's it's not as simple as Russia and China make a deal and then scheme right. to bring down the U.S. dollar. Why? Because they realize that bringing it down brings them down too. Right. So we're basically talking about a Mexican standoff, you know, a John Woo style or something like that, where neither person can do anything without pretty much screwing up themselves and everyone else around them. But in that situation, the fact that Russia and China do have some sort of economy does make it look like they they might be left standing should the, somebody like Obama or whoever or one of the warmongers in the Joint Chiefs of Staff pulls the trigger on something, economically speaking, you know, yeah. Russia could they, weather it. They are kind of getting pretty desperate, would you say, Eric? I mean, I've noticed that in the media uh, over the past few weeks with this Ukraine thing and Russia that 
uh, you know, the American politicians and stuff, you know, specifically Obama and Biden and uh, their lackeys, are they're really exposing themselves in terms of the kind of justifications they're coming out with for, for what they're doing. It's even the average person in the street, I find, uh, is kind of going, what? Did he really say that? What a lion beep. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Well, and what puzzles me is that uh, they don't learn from their mistakes because uh, we went through all of this four or five years ago with Georgia. Uh, uh, it was, in fact, it was during the last Olympics. It was the, it was the Summer Olympics in China. I don't know when. Uh-huh. I, uh, I, the Olympics uh, every two years. Uh, I'm not quite. <laughs> I think it was 2008. I think it was yeah. that. It was the once. Uh, removed the olympics once removed yeah. when during the olympics uh, and of course putin he's a little bit of a jock and he uh, he was uh, in he was in beijing for the olympics i remember that moment when uh this uh um, oh i've even forgotten his name now the uh the tin pot dictator of georgia elected whatever his name anyway Sakash- he invaded sorry sakashvili uh well yeah sakashvili was that it? Yeah. Okay. He, he invaded uh, uh, a disputed area, and uh, Russia responded, and then uh, basically uh, set up two independent states that were uh, formally uh, divided between Georgia and Russia and, uh, in the mountains, Abkhazia and, and Ossetia. So, uh, they, uh, again, it's the same kind of scenario as with uh, Crimea. These were traditionally part of Russia, and uh, um, now when you've got these pretend states, these full, as I call them, full uh, independent states uh, acting under U.S. Uh, um, hegemony, uh, uh, they, uh, Russia is going to uh, uh, react very uh, much in a, a great game one way is to say that this is traditionally ours and we're not going to have any part of your uh the game that you're playing now with all these ngos and and uh mm-hmm. pretend uh, independent states anymore we know what you're up to with nato etc etc so uh yeah it's funny that they don't learn because this is just a complete reenactment of that but you see there's a, there's a certain um Obama doesn't control everything. The U.S. is a big, uh, complex place, and the uh, Newland, uh, who is the secretary, is she a secretary of state for <laughs> Eastern Europe? Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, her yeah. husband, I, I, Wikipedia is very useful. I just Googled her name, and it turns out her husband is Kagan, uh, mm-hmm. who is one of the big ones behind uh, uh Project for uh, New American Century. It's been renamed now to take some of the edge off. So Mm -hmm. you're you're up on all of these uh, uh, connections. You see, there is a hardcore neoliberal. Perhaps he was involved in 9/11. Who knows? We haven't really Mm -hmm. pinned that down yet. But uh, uh, how how is 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 Obama part of that hardcore neoliberal conspiracy? I don't know. Uh, I I, I, I think, think he was. I think what he's do you puppet, think? Really, isn't he? I think he's a spokesman. You know, he's a front man yeah. by definition. You know, he's out there. Well, I would make one it. point. One point about him when he when he, when he first got elected, <clears throat> and I was in L.A. at the time, and I saw him on TV. He looked really kind of vivant, you know, uh, kind of mm-hmm. alive and young-looking gentleman, kind of. 
He could thing. dance. He could dance, you know. And then I was watching his speech where he was talking about the NS right after the NSA leaks. You know, we were saying you can't have absolute freedom and security, stuff like that. And it looked like he had his life sucked out of him. He had turned gray. It was mm-hmm. kind of like a Carter-esque kind of image. So I think that it is entirely possible that he may have actually thought that he was the president yeah. <laughs> at one point. He, actually <laughs> he, came he, in. Had power. he thought he was and a decider. And then the corporations or whatever, the money men, the lobbyists and all that came along and kind of read him that this is the way it is. And uh-huh. you've seen that he's basically reversed every single promise that he's made. Mm. Yeah. Or he's turned around on it. Did he really want to? Who knows? Did he really intend to do good? Yeah. I think that I think that Anybody who becomes president wants to be remembered as being good, except for George Bush, who is just like a total frat boy. I think that they actually want to be remembered as being a great president, and like he's really being made into a patsy right now. I mean, because when he finally comes out of office, he is going to be remembered by history as being the greatest liar that ever got elected. I mean, he's well, everything that he said has turned out to be a lie because he hasn't done a single thing that he promised. Well, just. Just on your point, uh, Eric, about uh, Pinak and uh, Victoria uh, Newland, who was, you know, her, t- her leaked telephone conversation, and her, her husband being Robert Kagan, who is was a Pinak guy. He's also he's also up there in the Brookings Institute, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And uh, that, to me, pointed to um, the fact that um, she's married to him and just looking at the Brookings Institute, which is a think tank, which is just another way of saying that this is a group of individuals who are the real policy makers who then give their uh, their decisions or their policies to the government to implement, you know. Right. Uh, and, you know, even the underlings, the supposed underlings in the State Department have more power. Like you see uh, Victoria Newland as Assistant Secretary of State actually on the ground orchestrating, you know, Getting the what is she? How does she say it? Getting the getting the deets to stick on Ukraine. She's the one who's there, you know, with the ambassador in Ukraine, uh, or in Ukraine, um, uh, you know, working with the CIA or whoever else, actually making this thing happen on the ground. And she references Biden, who is supposedly her boss and the vice president, saying, uh, referring to him as, you know, let's get Biden in for an attaboy, which means, you know, just. Biden, get in there and slap him on the back, just, you know, mm-hmm. smile for the camera type thing. So for me, that presented, uh, that, that showed uh, the, the real face of it, as in these guys are just the faces. It's that, like when that, movie stars, yeah. you know, the agents are the ones really making the moves. Yeah. Um, well, but, uh, and so, so they don't really, you say they have more power, but in fact, uh, I would say that uh, I call them handmaidens. Uh, of, yeah. of that how much power does a handmaiden have you know i mean you she can raise her hand or uh, dress mm. up beautifully or or put a rose in behind her ear but these are uh, are kind of cosmetic uh, changes and in fact uh, there's a logic that the uh, you, you could say the uh, great god of capitalism is can just sit back and watch the right. people carrying out the logic that uh, it's in a way it's like 9-11 I, uh, I don't know if, if that's too much of a red herring but uh, whether or not it was uh, actually carried out by uh, Cheney uh, uh, whatever you know as the truthers uh, uh, insist uh, there's a logic at work there that uh, um, you know that, that would cul- culminate you know it's uh, the fact that a lot of people cheered when the towers went down or saw it as a some kind of mm-hmm. miracle uh, i mean that 
it's because it is a, a fitting end. Uh, it's like an opera or something. Is it? There's a logic to the storyline that uh, mm-hmm. that's yeah. carried forward. Uh, might have another phone call here, so I'm just going um, to go ahead and check to see. Okay, you're not a caller, okay, right? Okay, you're not a caller, right? Just listening. All right. Sometimes we have people who uh, we we don't know whether our callers are listeners. Can I make a comment on the the handmaiden thing? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, when I saw that, um, I actually uh, for for a split second when I think you say that in the book, actually. Uh-huh. I saw that term somewhere, and and I looked at it, and for a split second, I had I had a slightly different impression. I, I thought of the these Barbara Newland characters and these various other different people who are involved in this more as midwives. Uh, yeah, they didn't knock the person up, but they are kind of very integral to 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 the delivery. Well, that's exactly of, what she says in her t- in her leaked telephone calls. Oh, along yeah. with she's, maybe she's, that's where I got it. She's from. getting the deets to stick. Yeah. Uh, to midwife this thing, yeah. and we'll get Biden mm-hmm. in for exactly. not a boy. That's, like how, that's how you. That's yeah. how you. That's how you create an, an American, in the new American kind of century. <laughs> that's how you create a new country and a new government and determine <laughs> the future of millions of people. You get the deets to stick and midwife it and slap some politician and in the back and push the them the Yeah. What's but, the uh, deet? I don't understand. Get the deet to stick? What does that yeah, mean? Details. The, the, the details. Oh, the details. 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 That's what she was saying. It's net speak. What, it's, stru- uh, what struck me about, uh, about the, the conversation was just the cavalier way that she was, this real kind of arrogant, kind of like, yeah, let's do this and let's do this, you know, wham, bam, you know, we'll get Biden in, deets will stick, we'll midwife it, boom, there's a new country, let's move on to the next one, baby. That, yeah. that was the kind of tone of her voice, you know. It's such like arrogance. I just wanted to, you know, boot her. <laughs> I know, like, again, that whole, the, the, uh, the analogy of the, of the Hollywood kind of agent and the star, you know. They're, they're all playing James Bond, right? Yeah, they're all just basically in there making deals. With people's lives. Making deals and, and putting on a show and making money. And to them, it's this casual affair. Like, she, she probably doesn't even give a crap that people actually died or, you know, that there was yeah. violent people were set all, on fire. All, all for the better. All for the better. Well, who are the snipers? Uh, exactly. th- this has never been cleared up. You know, the, the, uh, uh, when I, people were asking me here in, in this village in Canada, oh, poor Ukraine, what about the snipers, a nasty government? Well, it, it, it looks like the snipers were like the snipers in Egypt uh, uh, over the past three years, that they were mm-hmm. uh, basically uh, military, government, uh, CIA, who knows? Uh, it's hard and to get Venezuela. the goods on them. Well, there was yeah, evidence but, released that they were hired by the... Uh, well, there was the other like, leaked telephone yeah. call from the uh, Estonian foreign minister talking to Her Highness Catherine Ashton of the EU, uh, and he said to her that the evidence was pointing to that it was the members of, this, of the protesters of the right sector, of the Maidan. They were shooting policemen and their own people, essentially. But that got buried in the news. And that, that never happened. Mm. There's no historical precedent whatsoever for anything like that ever happening. It's totally new. But, uh, Eric, I just wanted to take it back a little bit, maybe um, in talking about PNAC earlier on, the Project for the New American Century, and this is a quote uh, from, from your book again that, the, that they called, and this is fairly well known, they called for a new Pearl Harbor. This is just prior to 9-11. Called for a new Pearl Harbor and that the U.S. must discourage advanced industrial nations <clears throat> from challenging our leadership or even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. 
mm-hmm. because, and, this, and, and uh, I quote again, the U.S. is the world's only superpower. America's grand strategy must aim to preserve and extend this advantageous position as far into the future as possible. I mean, if those guys are the guys who are taking policy and or were and still are to some extent, then, yeah, I mean, they're very clear about it. Nobody yeah, is allowed to challenge Often uh, from, from the mouth of babes uh, comes truth or... Uh, I don't know, maybe they're drunk uh, in vino uh, veritas, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, they, they've made, uh, made it quite clear. It's, it's definitely, it's just like uh, when I've been researching 9-11 in this context of uh, how, how it would fit into a, a great game, the great games. Uh, uh, I, I suggest to download the uh, 9-11 report, uh, which actually it's, it's well written, and there is a lot. There's a lot there that uh, makes it m- made me. Uh, it's put me on the fence about. Uh, you know, I can't come down uh, hard without really clear evidence about actually who did what, because uh, there, uh, there there is a. Um, I mean, it's a very flawed report, but again, it's the officials are uh, these people uh, the P- I think the people that were running it uh, did want to know what happened I, I, I really maybe they didn't want to tell us but yeah, uh, they don't this, know. and I, I think that uh, they really don't know either uh, completely just, so it, just, it's interesting that uh, the PNAC people they're quite clear but then they're just setting out their agenda they're not uh, uh, they're not actually investigating you know who started World War Two or or uh, some kind of historical event. It's it's a slightly different situation. And Newland, with her uh, um, frothing at the mouth, I mean, she's yes, she's quite uh, uh, disgusting the way, the way uh, she uh, joked about the whole thing. But uh, you can you can tell from this that it's these people are living in a fantasy world of where, where see the, you can take the great game motive too far and just see it strictly uh, uh, as a game but it's it's much more complicated and as you were saying you know people die and and uh, mm-hmm. it, there is a reality that uh, we have to uh, um, and, the, and these Newland types uh, they don't think in terms of people dying or uh, that uh, the, the game motive breaks down and that some of the players might not follow the rules and uh, that there might be uh, more serious players, someone like Putin, uh, is uh, not just uh, playing a game. He's concerned with the very survival of uh, Russia and uh, uh, his his nation, his modern nation. So, uh, you know, there's different motives in people's minds, and I think that uh, uh, I, I hope I made that clear that it's not just a game; that it's much more, much more than that. Well, I think it was. Uh, do you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say in your. I was going to quote again from your first book and ask you a question that maybe takes us back a little bit further, because um, back to maybe the first great game. Uh, in your first book, you say the neocon program is merely the American version of the political process in Israel and Palestine, where the Israeli victory against the peace agreement with Egypt in 1967 did not lead to a real politic peace with Israel's neighbors, but on the contrary to more Israeli aggression. Neither did U.S. maximalism, as practiced from Reagan onwards, lead to any peaceful world. And then you say something that's kind of a bit strange, which is this underlying logic 
the logic of Lenin's imperialism is at the very heart of U.S. and Israeli strategies. So I want to know how or why you Can you give me the page con- number? Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's a general oh. question. I mean, you, you make a reference to basically Lenin's imperialism, and you're going back there to the Bolshevik Revolution and, and the, mm-hmm. the creation, the origins of the, you know, the Soviet Union or whatever. And, and you're saying that it's similar to the kind of ideology that we're seeing today among the supposed enemies or the you know the people who were and are the enemies of Soviet, the Soviet Union and Russia, but they, you're saying that Lenin and them share a similar ideology. Oh, I, I don't think I was saying. Uh, I, I think what I meant there. Uh, uh, I, I, I should look at the quote, but Lenin was uh, analyzing imperialism and uh, the logic. Yeah, when I say the logic of Lenin, I mean the uh, Lenin's logic in exposing the great game and what was going on, which was that uh, mm-hmm. uh, imperialism can only lead to war. And mm-hmm. you see that this is uh, the British view. The even Hobson would have would would agree with Lenin. Yeah, Lenin uh, was was deriving his analysis from Hobson. But uh, you see that the official version of uh, the, you could say the Israeli or uh, the uh, the people that were carrying out the policies, they were saying we want to unite the world. And or Cecil Rhodes, the whole uh, his whole idea with the British Empire was to uh, unite the world under British hegemony and to end war. That was, it's very simple. It's, it's very beautiful, uh, th- this idea. But, of course, it's nonsense because uh, by expanding and aggressively murdering and pillaging and, and uh, creating war, what you do is you just uh, encourage other nations to be just as ruthless and just as underhanded, and they'll fight you mm. if they get strong enough. So uh, the, the whole logic of imperialism is towards more war. Now, uh, the U.S. was uh, kind of dusting off the uh, Disraeli version and say, oh, we'll just unite the world around the U.S. dollar and there'll be no more war. Uh, it's wonderful watching Hollywood movies. I, I love to watch uh, the uh, World War II and uh, the post-war, the early movies, because there's very much this... this um, excitement about creating a peaceful world uh of course it was all uh, uh, a conspiracy to make it not peaceful but but you see what happened is there was more war by uh trying to create this united world uh and and by collapsing destroying the soviet union uh they produced even more uh tension and more uh, war. You, you conspire and people are going to conspire against you. And the same with uh, Israel. It conspired uh, to take over all of Palestine and it just created a monster that uh, most Israelis would uh, uh, be happy to, to dispense with, I think. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's a logic there, a grim logic that they can't uh, uh, expose. So does that clear up that point about Lenin's... Uh, yeah. yeah, and just to follow on from what you're saying, I think... Uh, if you look at the way their ideology and their, how they've been explicit about what they intend, I don't think we can just say that they're planning, uh, that their real intent is to have a peaceful world. I think they, they're, they're pretty clear that they have to break some eggs to make this particular omelette. They're not right. behind the door about you know, saying that there's going to be some conflict here, but they, they, they just pass that off as necessary, you know, in this kind of blithe kind of way that, you know, well, if people die, that's, it's for the greater good. So it's almost like a, a capitalist, communist 
bizarre kind of monstrous mix, you know. And uh, but ultimately, I think ideologies for these people don't really matter. It's whatever works, right? I mean, they'll say anything uh, if it gets them ultimately uh, what they want. And I think what they want is just uh, control, domination, and uh, you know. That's pretty much it. I mean, I can't. I, I don't know about you, Eric, but I can't think of any other reason when trying to analyze what motivates these people. Uh, I, I can't come up with anything other than just pure, unfettered greed and desire to. Uh-huh. Control. Well, I, I think that's fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I, I, I watched a documentary on prisons, uh, various different prisons, and seeing the efficiencies. And some of them, of course, are quite bad, and some of them, of course, are quite good. And I was kind of interested in the fact that, that despite a few, you know, exceptional circumstances, most well-run prisons are very peaceful places. Um, uh, that with the inmates are completely prevented and locked up in cells, and they're totally trapped in mm-hmm. the prison. They have no opportunity to do anything. And so I think that ultimately the empire's goal is to uh, <laughs> to attain peace. Uh, by way of an absolute submission and uh, enslavement and, and, and basically imprisoning of, of everyone and everything everywhere. That, and, and at some point, if they were allowed to continue without any obstruction, they may uh, obtain that. Now, the question is, is, do we as human beings want to live in the American prison that's you know, going to be designed uh, to achieve that total peace? I don't think so. Yeah, and uh, prisons, as you say, can be nice, uh, relatively nice. Uh, You know, you can have them painted slightly or uh, have soft music or uh, even have education. And that's, uh, when I think of the EU, I think in a way it's it's a kind of prison now of Mm. nations uh, because uh, uh, you're basically forced to follow certain monetary policies or uh, even uh, uh, environmental. I mean, it's, and some of it's good. Some of it, it's good to restrain uh, uh, certain um, negative uh, social features. But uh, uh, nonetheless, it, uh, um, it, it you've got to accept the uh, the banker logic that is motivating that EU. I mean, that's not the right. EU that we would like to see. That uh, and uh, there's no way out of it. You can't right. reform that EU to uh, uh, get rid of uh, of that kind of banker logic. It's uh, it's it's embedded in the whole foundation. Something like that would have to collapse before it uh, it could be rebuilt. Yeah, uh, on the topic of American imperialism, though, you know, I mean, uh, Hannah Arendt in her Origins of Totalitarianism kind of talks about the white man's burden, especially in, in Africa and and and. Uh, the British kind of like philosophy of sending out these people and setting up these bureaucracies that were actually kind of basically like uh, prisons for the population, preventing them from ever being able to do anything or, or have anything beyond just simply kind of you know existing as some sort of subservient vassal entity for 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 the British Empire. So there's this kind of white man's burden that kind of comes from that, and now we kind of have the American's burden. Which is the, the the amazing burden of the uh, sort of leader of the free world imposing American style democracy and capitalism on the world to sort of civilize the natives, and it seems to me that Americans, as a general rule, they still have a lot of trouble of understanding that there might be other ways of living or seeing or experiencing the world 
um, and that maybe some of these countries don't want to be American clones. Um, and so they, they lend their support <coughs> to this whole democratizing of America simply because they, they, they really think that their way is the best way. Um, that, that was my comment on... I didn't really have a question in there, unfortunately, but I just wanted to say no, that. No, that's a, a good point. I, I don't really uh, uh, know what to suggest to people that say in Egypt... Uh, uh, where I worked for uh, six years and, and wrote, uh, you know, the, 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 there are positive aspects to uh, uh, modern quote-unquote civilization, you know, just technology, whatever, but uh, how to structure uh, your, your society politically and uh, culturally to, to avoid the pitfalls, that's very difficult. And uh, that's where I think... I, I was very excited uh, by the possibility of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, taking power because they, uh, they're very aware of the cultural, culturally uh, negative aspects and also economically the, uh, the, uh, um, the negative role of bankers and uh, uh, the loss of control. They wanted to reassert Egypt as a modern economy with, with its own mm. currency and with its own... Um, a national bourgeoisie, not, not uh, a bourgeoisie that is uh, completely, uh, you know, uh, spiriting its money abroad and uh, yeah. working uh, with the IMF uh, hand in glove. I, I think so, that's, so, the, that's the problem, and that's the lie that's that's given. Uh, oh, that, that's the lie that's inherent within the, the whole idea of the uh, American civilizing influence, bringing freedom and democracy. And it gets back to this guy Samuel Huntington. Um, he wrote another paper, I can't remember the name of it, but he uh, talked about uh, modernizing societies and it was basically an apology for the way America goes about what it does. And he said that um, as societies modernize, they become more complex and disordered. If the process of social modernization that produces this disorder is not matched by a process of political and institutional modernization, the result may be violent. So, I mean, he's, he's talking here about mod, the bringing other countries, like let's say Muslim or Islamic uh, countries uh, in different places around the world, uh, into the modern world and imposing the, the, the U.S. model of modernization on them. And that they're saying that, you know, unless you have the political systems in place there to deal with the modern modernization of these countries. But the question is, what is this modernization that they're bringing in? Is it like, you know, a 60-hour week for no pay and uh, bad social welfare, no, you know, no, no uh, social kind of security net and all that kind of stuff? Is it, that's the kind of modernization under the IMF that he's talking about. And he's saying that, well, you know, he glosses over that, doesn't mention that, but just says, these people are, you know, they're, they're not, they need to be modernized. They need to have their, their, country, their countries and their cultures uh, modernized. And there's going to be a backlash against this because these people are just inherently backwards. anachronistic and backwards and they can't deal with it and right. need to have the, the modern political structures in place to essentially force this modernization right. on them because for some reason they just won't get with it. And people in the West are saying, well, yeah, it's great. Look, we've got our iPhones and our Twitter accounts and all that kind of stuff. And people in the West support that and say, yeah, they should have what we have. Like people in the West don't realize that or don't even question whether or not their modern society is actually good or there's any negatives right. about it or why, whether you would want to oppose that on other people, you know. Right. And there's also the idea of uh, the modernization that other countries in the East, let's say, would get or in Africa would get 
would be very different from the modernization that that we have here in the sense that they'd be working a lot longer. I mean, China's a modern country, right? right. But, you know, you have Chinese people working 80 hours a week for a dollar a day type thing. You know? to, to bring a kind of parallel in, uh, the white man, the missionaries, various missionaries and, and, and different uh, civilizing forces in the world – we're very big on bringing, say, for instance, like medicines and uh, wheat flour and all this different stuff into native populations and then decimating them with things like the common cold. So while there are obviously beneficial things about modern culture, I mean, this is so bad to have an iPod or whatever, but Maybe. the point being is, is you know, there's this, these two mutually not, – not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I think mutually exclusive elements, which is there is modern technology and modern life and modern possibilities – and then there's the kind of cancerous growth that has infested, you know, sort of uh, the American system that also gets transmuted over there. And, and these guys who are writing that, they don't realize what the right hand kind of doesn't know what the left hand is doing. They're going in thinking they're doing something good, and then certain aspects of the, of the government and the corporatocracy are coming in and just, you know, raping and pillaging all around. And they don't – they kind of have their blinders on. Yeah, they don't still recognize it. that because it doesn't fit with their idea of their culture and who they are. But they're upper middle class. You know, most yeah. of them are upper middle class, educated people. They've never, you know, been a part of the, the society that they're quote-unquote liberating. Yeah. You know, they've never been on that uh, spectrum, so they don't even know. They come in, they fiddle around with stuff, they reorganize stuff, and then they, they walk shag away. off. And, and somebody else comes in and says, hey, <laughs> Candyland, yeah. you know. Well, and uh, if take go back to the uh, Muslim alternative uh, here, because uh, as you were uh, saying, the, the uh, Huntington talks about the need for modern political reforms. Well, what mm -hmm. that means, of course, is secular, that uh, uh, you right. now uh, uh, push religion completely out of uh, the realm of political life, or uh, uh, um, that it... it uh, the politics now is governed uh, only by uh, money. That's what uh, th that reduces to then, because uh, by, by ta taking religion uh, or any sense of ethics out of uh, um, public life and replacing that with uh, control by money, that uh, you have this, um, uh, the tw I guess, the 20th century disease, uh, that uh, the corruption that... In, uh, invaded uh, public life and is endemic to public life. So, so that secular is uh, one thing that the West uh, implies uh, uh, because that's a way for uh, the West to uh, control its uh, postmodern, uh, you know, uh, colonial, mm -hmm. neo-colonial government. But some of the cultural things that uh, uh, that. Uh, the West uh, criticizes uh, something like the Muslim Brotherhood for is uh, that uh, the uh, t trying to reduce the uh, commercialization of, this, uh, uh, of sex and uh, uh, making women uh, uh, sex symbols, that, which is the essence of Western uh, culture, is that uh, women are portrayed as sex symbols and. Uh, um, and then, of course, women fight. They might want to fight that, but uh, the commercialization is so overpowering that there's not much they can do. Uh, and right. also, the, when I come back to Canada after spending time in even Egypt, which is uh, quite moderate, um, that uh, there are lots of Westerners, lots of drinking, 
but when I look at Western movies, uh, even they, they all focus around people getting plastered. You know, drinking is uh, mm-hmm. celebrated as as the great liberation and the great way of achieving personal joy or, or whatever. <laughs> Eastern culture is so completely different, and these are things that uh, I think are very important into rebuilding our own uh, culture here to make it more uh, human uh, is, mm-hmm. and, and to take away the, the power. I mean, by, by being drunk all the time, by uh, making sex something that is uh, cheap and uh, commercial, uh, and by refusing to uh, allow uh, morality within our uh, public lives, uh, that's the kind of the I would say the basis of the uh, um, the, the, the weakness or the, the even the disaster of of Western uh, society these days. Eric, that's a very good point. Something I've been thinking about for a while now regarding Russia and how it's treated, portrayed in the West. I, I look at some of the things Putin has said and. I can't help but think that he's actually taking the moral stand yes, when yes. he speaks up, when he speaks, when he says with, with some passion, who does NATO think they are bombing Libya like that? Mm-hmm. And then with, with Syria, he goes a step further, and I think he actually thwarts the war. He should have won the Nobel Peace Prize by the standards they use. Mm-hmm. And then here we go again, and he's actually using physical force to defend people this time. It seems to me that there's, it's, it's more than a case of the great game between these empires and that empires and who's going to get on top and get what. There's a moral confidence going on here. What is it? Is it something about Russia? Something about the Slavic mentality, perhaps? Is it something, is it not so much a statement on the Eastern, Oriental and Islamic mentality? Is it, some, is it a statement about the mindset of certain people within the white Western mentality? Well, I think part of Russia is, uh, the case with Russia is it's uh, orthodox, uh, Christian orthodox is is less, quote-unquote, reformed, is less uh, secularized, and it's actually closer in... Uh, many respects to Islam. Uh, as I, th- th- we're getting into the territory of my second book now, which is from mm-hmm. postmodernism to post-secularism, reemerging mm-hmm. Islamic civilization. Uh, whereas, I, and I'm trying to make the case there that uh, uh, rather than trying to s- subdue Islam and uh, incorporate it into the Western, <clears throat> excuse me, the the Western uh, model. Uh, we should uh, look to the differences and to see where Islam has something to teach us. And uh, we can also look to the uh-huh. orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy. And also, of course, Putin is very much uh, uh, building on the legacy of the Soviet Union, which, uh, uh, again, there was a moral component there. It wasn't just cynically trying to expand to uh, make more profit. Uh, uh, why did uh, the Soviet Union collapse? It was because it was helping its East European uh, um, uh, allies uh, with cheap gas uh, and uh, subsidized uh, goods. It was also um, providing Central Asia. If, if, if you ever go to Uzbekistan, where I lived for uh, uh, almost 15 years, 
uh, the, the Uzbeks had no had no use for this uh, faux independence. Uh, they all uh, would, in a flash, return to the uh, freedom and the openness and the prosperity of the Soviet Union. For them, it was uh, a golden period, very much, uh, and especially the the last twenty years, where uh, it was quite, there was certainly no uh, persecution. Uh, no overt uh, religious persecution as there had been uh, for about uh, 10 or 15 year period under Stalin. Um, by, by the mid 60s, it was, uh, it was quite possible to lead a, a life and, and uh, uh, to have some faith. So uh, you see that, that Soviet uh, orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy and, uh, and the Islam these are forces that are actually uh, moral forces, uh, contrary to the way they're portrayed in the West, where we're taught that the Soviet Union was evil, the empire of evil, where uh, Islam is uh, evil, or where, <coughs> or where orthodoxy, no one really pays much attention to Christian orthodoxy in the West. Well, I can, just on Uzbekistan, I can well believe that people in Uzbekistan would be harking looking back to the Soviet Union as a golden era because, um, I mean, Uzbekistan is essentially a dictatorship right now that is, has for many years been supported and kind of propped up by uh, the British and the Americans. They have, the Americans have a base there. Um, Craig, you, you probably know Craig Murray. He was the uh, former oh, ambassador yes. uh-huh. to Uzbekistan. Yeah. He wrote a, wrote a book about his experiences there, yeah. murder in Samarkand. And the, the the treatment that the Uzbeks get, I mean, they live in a in the most horrible kind of uh, dictatorship there is type of thing uh, in the modern world, and it's fully supported by Western powers. Uh, well, not fully supported, because, in fact, uh, it was until about 2006, I believe that was the year that... Right, yeah. That uh, of the um, massacre that uh, just a, a, probably about a thousand people they were just demonstrating in a square, uh, and uh, because they were actually trying to implement some Islamic uh, traditions in their own business practices, it was there was nothing mm-hmm. subversive or, or little subversive. Who knows? I mean, there might have been a uh, uh, there certainly is a. a an underground movement uh, is that, um, of Uzbek independence uh, that uh, is um, militant and is actually um, in Afghanistan too. But uh, of course, it's a chicken and an egg. I mean, where did they come from? It was uh, um, Karimov right from the start uh, um, got the most vicious uh, KGB types to. Uh, uh, be his personal guards, and uh, it's it's quite a nasty uh, history, right from 1990 yeah. when he took over. Mm-hmm. Although, as as Craig Murray said, like during the war on terror, the, the post 9/11 years, Uzbekistan was used as a as one of their kind of. Um, uh-huh. the, the, black, the Americans black actually holes. did pull out in Europe. They started after the massacre. They they did uh, uh, reduce their. Uh, direct uh, work, but uh, never completely. And uh, now, after Crimea, uh, it's like uh, that's their excuse to forget all the... The Germans are are particularly uh, obnoxious, uh, you know, uh, uh, paying little attention to human rights issues when uh, when they can uh, develop some of their own... uh, 
um, uh, business practices or who knows maybe they've got uh, uh, maybe they're itching to be the uh, modern state again uh, certainly mm-hmm. I guess within the EU they uh, do control uh, most of the shots so in a sense they're uh, they do have more power than they uh, than appears. Let me just. Uh, I'm just going to check to see if we have a caller on the line here. Do we have a caller on the line? Yes, it's Charles again. May I enter the fray once more? <laughs> sure, Charles. Go ahead. Hello again. <laughs> uh, well, since it's the great games of the global elite, the title, and since Eric's, uh, I believe, originally from Canada. Uh, by the way, Eric, thanks for standing up for the, uh, for the Islam because the way I kind of read it, it was like the Western expansion, you know, where uh, if, if America and Canada, well, I think Canada did more than America, frankly, but if they had allowed the Native Americans to have their culture, how much richer we would, excuse me, we would have all been if, if we could have learned from them. Mm-hmm. And in Islam, I feel like the Western expansion attack against Islam is you can't have Allah before the mall. You know, you got to take the mall. Mm-hmm. Hey, take it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, uh, Eric, since you're you're Canadian, am I right? Yes. Okay. Uh, and you're writing the, this book. This title is uh, the Global Elite. I'd like to know what the hell has happened to Canada. You know, I heard someone say one time, and I, I believe this as well, I was born in Toronto, so just to, to put that up. But uh, uh, Toronto was New York made in Switzerland. And there's this wonderful part of Canada that it is like the EU. It's, it's very, um, well, it's smart in a lot of ways. But when I worked in Toronto in two, uh, uh, 1972, you never saw people in the street begging i saw a guy in 2000 washing a window like uh like tijuana Mm, and my cousin had to quit his job he worked for the government and he he had to lie to people because they were saying you know like politicians do they say oh yeah this is what's going on but it wasn't what was going on and uh, i'm not going to go on with that anymore i just i'm curious what has happened to canada is all oil does oil control the whole world and stephen harper he's he's pitiful Anyways, well, I, all I can say is you're right. absolutely right. Uh, what's happened is, uh, I guess, in one word, Mulroney. Uh, you could say that's the beginning of the end. Really, was uh, uh, his uh, when the conservatives when he slipped in back in the 1980s and, and pursued NAFTA, and uh, uh, this Harper is just an extreme version of Mulroney now uh, with his uh, oil sands and um, pipeline, a massive pipeline across Canada and what's his other, oh the fracking as well, uh, the most uh, dis- uh, you know, environmentally harmful uh, ways of creating energy and he seems to be uh, he's gung-ho on that, so and also but, but uh, I guess it's because the conservatives were basically were taken over uh, by the uh, this kind of radical right. Uh, um, it was about uh, ten. It was just when Harper was the first of the of these new reform uh, conservatives uh, that they destroyed the old. There was a sense in Canada, uh, if you go back uh, even 40 years or to Stanfield or or the earlier conservatives of of uh, the Red Tory. 
that there was a sense of uh, a kind of an aristocratic uh, um, sense that uh, workers should have some rights and uh, within limits, of course. But uh, but you look after your peons, uh, so that that kind of mentality. Now that's been lost completely, and now Harper is the the biggest. Uh, lapdog in terms of Ukraine or Syria or wherever. Uh, Israel, of course. Uh, As well, yeah. uh, Completely. So we, didn't, we haven't really got into that whole messy uh, uh, issue of just how Israel fits into this uh, empire. Um, because it's, again, there's another reason why we really have to talk about game Great Game 3, because Israel is a major, major player in its own right, whereas Great Game 1, of course, there was no um, Israel. Israel. There was no Jewish state. Jews were very much incorporated within the various empire elites as bankers primarily, but uh, now they have their own uh, issue, and, and it's Canada uh, as a postmodern state that is uh, uh, easily manipulated by the empire. Uh, in this case, it's 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 manipulated by both Israel and U.S. in a very complex way. So, uh, um, I, so Charles, uh, yes, your point. Uh, uh, I agree with Billy. It's very depressing to very depressing to be a Canadian these days, uh, having had some credible. Uh, Credibility in the past, as uh, as you said, a New York, uh, uh, switch, uh, or switch New York. Uh, now we're just uh, uh, more like a, a, a Manchester, Detroit. Yeah. And now you have John Ford as a mayor. <laughs> that guy. Yes, cocaine snorter. Or is it uh, what's meth? Meth apparently is this big. Do Do we have another call on the line? No, we don't have a call online. Well, perhaps, perhaps we should um, broach the question then about Israel. Um, Pierre will have something to bring up there. I think he's been waiting okay. to bring something. Go for it. Well, are, we, are we good on your, the, your question? I'm just quoting you, Eric, about Israel. You're describing the beginning of a great game three around the, the end of the 70s where U.S. is controlling everything, militarily speaking, media, finance, economy, etc. And you're right, the fly in the ointment was the fundamentally anachronistic nature of Zionist plans. They had not changed either. Israel was still a settler colonial regime in a neo-colonial era, a recipe for permanent war. So maybe you can uh, elaborate from, from this quote. Yes, that... Israel was born out of uh, uh, with Mackinder, who uh, well actually goes back to uh, Lord Shaftesbury, 1848. Uh, there's a great quote that I have uh, in in my book about uh, uh, the need to create this uh, Jewish state in the Middle East as a link in in uh, the British Empire as a necessary link. Uh, mm -hmm. That was even before the Suez Canal, of course, when uh, this idea of a Jewish state and then uh, who's going to finance the, uh, the uh, Suez Canal, well, of course, Rothman and Rothschild, and uh, um, then you put them together with, uh, uh, in the same spot, you have a very 
uh, powerful motive uh, to create uh, a, a colony. Uh, it, it was it was conceived as a colony, but then it came about, ironically, as a neo-colony, as an independent uh, state. Not uh, Israel was never uh, the Palestine, the Palestinian Authority uh, in the. Uh, from 1921 to uh, uh, 47 was uh, British controlled, but it was only uh, temporary, and it, w- it was uh, clear that it would become independent. So, so uh, you could say the uh, the logic of, of the first great game uh, led to this creation of Israel, uh, which then became uh, a. Comp- um, in, in fact, Israel has much more to do with Nazi Germany as a, as a concept because it was a racial. It was born out of uh, a racial uh, chauvinism. Uh, and uh, then it soon, it was supposed to serve British interests, but uh, it, um, and it did to a certain extent, but, uh, but by 56 with the Suez uh, crisis uh, and the collapse of the British uh, empire uh, completely by that point uh, Israel then uh, starts to morph into something very very different and uh, uh, as I outlined in my book um, in 56 uh, it w- there was no it was a very uh, small uh, modest uh, uh, Israeli lobby Jewish lobby whatever you want to call it in, in Washington uh, and uh, Eisenhower was able to uh, ignore it and uh, to threaten Israel and say uh, we're not, we'll stop arming. In fact, uh, what was his? I, I don't have the exact details at my fingertips, but he basically told Israel out of Sinai. Uh, or, or, so um, Israel still had to obey at that point. And when they looked at Israeli politicians afterwards, they they looked at what went wrong, and they realized they only had one or two uh, lobbyists uh, at the Capitol Hill. So the next 10 years was uh, a, a very powerful um, uh, effort to uh, infiltrate and to control all the Congress and Senate uh, through uh, either direct, directly through um, assistance in the offices of the uh, congressman, whatever, or just through uh, these organizations like APAC uh, and uh, um, w- uh, other ones. There's quite a few. Uh, I, I detailed. There's a lot of uh, very good research by people like Petrus uh, that I was able to call on to uh, pull together that whole development of the Israeli lobby and how powerful it became by uh, 67. So Israel was able to keep its Sinai uh, conquest in 67 and uh, then to start to proceed to colonize uh, the areas that it previously had no claim to, not even in its wildest dreams. So uh, Israel uh, it has become much has become more, much more of a headache than a help uh, to the U.S. these days. Just on the uh, on the big kind of question of the commie threat during the Cold War, post World War II until 1991, <clears throat> how, to what extent was that threat real? To what extent was there 
uh, or was to what extent was the American kind of use of the communist threat to you know go around the world protecting against it was that real uh, and to what extent was it uh, just you know a justification? Well, I, I would say uh, it was um, it was really a, a hoax. Uh, Generally speaking, yeah. there was very very little. Uh, well, uh, Soviet Union was never uh, under Stalin. It was never expansionist. It, it was like uh, look at Franco Spain. You know, Franco Spain mm. was not. It was a dictatorship. It was not a nice dictatorship. Uh, but uh, it, it was basically very cautious and and, and uh, self-preservation. That was the essence of of, mm-hmm. of uh, both uh, Franco Spain and uh, Soviet Union. I don't like to idolize it because, of course, there were great uh, uh, um, horrible uh, repressions under Stalin, and uh, there were horrible environmental disasters. There was very crude planning in many ways that caused uh, serious problems uh, and just the borders you know uh, this ukraine problem would not be nearly so bad if if uh, stalin hadn't uh, shifted the borders uh, and and uh, taken part of uh, um, of uh, poland of course these borders are uh, maybe that's a red herring but, uh, you know, there's many things to criticize, but there was never any intent of, of, uh, to invade Western Europe. That's complete nonsense. Uh, and uh, um, that, that was a hoax that uh, it's just, uh, it's, it makes me very angry to think how people were, were, uh, uh, were conned into, into believing that. Uh, you know the uh, and the French Communist Party or the Italian Communist Party they, they they would never have been I mean let's say they came to power they wouldn't have joined the Soviet Union they uh, these were very independent very credible uh, parties with a longer tradition than even the Russian Party so I can't I can't uh, uh, go along with with uh, that uh, the whole problem with Eastern Europe with the uh, Czechoslovakia and the, 1968 and all of that that was purely uh um balance of power uh real politic and you know uh, russia was just afraid uh czechoslovakia that uh uh it, that would be like pulling the plug and the whole thing would collapse and that's exactly what would have happened and that's what exactly did happen uh 20 years later with the very naive gorbachev so uh, you know, it's not that it was a beautiful system, but it should never have collapsed. It was a great tragedy that collapsed rather than uh, having this, uh, uh, someone like Andropov, I think. or uh, there, there were no leaders at that point. Uh, that, that was the political weakness, that it hadn't renewed itself and uh, wasn't capable of, of producing a, uh, a reform uh, um, that would would work. It's it kind of chicken and egg, though, because you know it, when I look back now on the Soviet Union, it right from 1917 it was uh, attacked, invaded, undermined uh, constantly. People don't seem to realize that uh, in the 50s uh, CIA quite openly was uh, infiltrating, sending emigres, right wing emigres back in that could speak their German or Czech or whatever language and they were blowing up talk there was sabotage going on just 
uh, it was part of the standard policy. And this was not the case with, uh, I checked this and there's, uh, I urge people to, uh, I've got the material, the quotes uh, uh, to back me up that uh, the Soviet um, spies, whatever Soviet spies there were in the U.S., were totally ineffectual, and they were m mostly they were there just to try and find out what was happening. They were not there. There was no subversion. There was no policy of of infiltrating people into uh, to blow up factories, or which is mm -hmm. what the U.S. Uh, and Britain, whatever, were doing in uh, Eastern Europe and in in Russia. So. Uh, part part of what motivated me to write uh, postmodern imperialism was to to just get this clear that uh, uh, because now uh, uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union, uh, all you hear is how evil it was, how horrible, how stupid, how wonderful the West was. It, it, there's this whole uh, uh, agenda, uh, uh, propaganda that uh, is it, being. Uh, that we're being brainwashed with. In fact, I just watched, uh, you know, Michael Palin of uh, Monty Python mm -hmm. uh, fame. Uh, he uh, did a, a series called The New Europe, a uh, seven-part series where he goes to all the different Europe. I mean, he's, he's a nice fellow, but he is a, a total brainwasher, a complete uh, uh, toady to this postmodern world. He has no understanding at all of no political understanding of, of no. Uh, and, and no interest in socialism or no sense of anti-imperialism. Nothing. It, it's very sad because there's a uh, a very smooth, uh, witty person uh, basically blessing uh, the the whole imperial agenda. I, I was quite appalled at. Uh, at that, so I'm not. I'm not urging you to watch it unless, no. unless you watch but, it with well, a critical uh, well, eye. Well, tell me, you lived in Russia or in the Soviet Union, right? Yes, Before yes. I went Russia. over to study in '79. I was there during the invasion uh, of Afghanistan. It was quite a, a surreal experience, and then I mm -hmm. went back in '89 and lived in Moscow for another four years. Mm. And you found life there okay? Uh, read read my, the, the uh, introduction or the prologue to... Uh, I give an, a, a brief account of my uh, experiences there. It was bizarre uh, and uh, surreal at times. But uh, uh, and as a young person who likes you know to be free to do what you uh, to, to do whatever you want, uh, I, I found it frustrating in many ways. But I understand uh, I understand it much uh, more clearly now as uh, basically uh, a benign dictatorship. Uh, I mean, it morphed into that in the in the Stalin period. It was. Uh, pretty nasty, but uh, by by the mid 50s, um, it, it was over uh, that uh, uh, really serious uh, uh, negative period. And uh, uh, I, I had wonderful times. I look back, I would say those were uh, perhaps some of the best uh, times in my life in terms of human relations, travel. Uh, it was a huge uh, area. I was able to travel freely. 
people were wonderfully friendly, uh, well-educated. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of crime. Uh, life was cheap and easy. As long as you didn't uh, want a lot of luxuries, uh, you could live quite happily. Okay, and one more quick question uh, before we have to bring, a, bring an end to the show. Um, I, I know you probably explain this in your second book, Post, From Postmodernism to Postsecularism, um, but just on the Iraq thing, a major aspect of the, you know, the, the latter years uh, or the, after the invasion was um, uh, life in Iraq was marred by claims of civil war and the appearance of civil war, and uh, fingers were always pointed at this, the natural Sunni-Shia divide in Iraq, that this was always going to happen. It was just brewing beneath the surface. What's, uh, do you have any comment on that? Do you know anything whether or not that vaunted uh, claim of uh, underlying uh, religious tension between Sunni and, Sunni and Shia in Iraq is true? Well, we get back to the borders. Where, where, did, these, where did Iraq's borders come from? They were uh, uh, set up, uh, the, uh, Britain undermined uh, and uh, basically took over the uh, Ottoman Caliphate and then created these uh, statelets and uh, called them independent states, of course. But this is back in the 30s. Uh, it was just, they were not modern states then. They were going to be postmodern. They were the early postmodern states uh, that uh, eventually uh, um, all of the British Empire w was turned into postmodern states, which, which could be manipulated. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it was made up of three completely uh, different uh, areas of, of, uh, of the Ottoman uh, you know, Kurdistan, um, the Shia part, and the uh, Sunni part of uh, of Mesopotamia, uh, and they were lumped together. And uh, they, they were originally done that uh, by this British woman. I forget her name, but she she mm -hmm. said we we have to uh, do this because we don't want to let the Shia be uh, have their own state. That would be the very devil. She actually, uh, that's a quote from the uh, uh, British uh, Foreign Office uh, lady. The line with Iran. Yeah, well, yes. That uh, I mean, I have grown to have great respect for Shia because uh, they are, well, for many reasons, they, they uh, have a political savvy and uh, they have a militancy and... Uh, uh, and they'll also have a great tradition of scholarship, and uh, uh, so, so they're, they're, it's, it's a very interesting take. And uh, again, uh, the Sunni-Shia Sunni divide, uh, the U.S. has been uh, very keen to uh, make it worse, and uh, there's lots of evidence that uh, CIA types were sent in in after 2003 to actually uh, create some of the uh, violence that uh, and to help it so I, I don't know I, I hate to just paint the US completely black because uh, perhaps there were I mean there were I'm sure there are US people that went in there to be nice and to try and help Iraqis and you know I don't some of the it. NGO people <laughs> I don't believe it I'm sorry I'm too cynical uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I kind of wrote about it, you know, it's just it's something that uh, I looked into and it seems to me that uh, after the invasion from 2003 onwards that there were um, basically U.S. 
funding sponsored death squads and they're running around and saving Yes, and at the same uh, time, there are NGOs, uh, perhaps they're just cover ones, but you've got to, uh, I mean, I, I know some of these Americans, there are nice Americans that, I mean, they're, they really want to help people. They're not, uh, you know, some of these Peace Corps people, I've met many Peace Corps people, and, and uh, some of them are just genuinely really nice people, some of them are, you know, uh, they hate their government's policy, uh, it, it's not uh, completely black and white. Uh, no, and, but and those people the, can't do anything, really. Yeah, uh, they're not running the death squads. Well, well, exactly. Even if they're, they've got, they're well-intentioned in Iraq, if there's an overarching higher-level policy to yes, do the exact yeah. opposite of what they're trying to do and they're not aware of it, what's the point? You know, I mean, they're just naive and misguided, you know? Uh-huh. Okay, uh, uh, fair enough. That's but, what uh, I would say, yeah. I mean, it doesn't say they're, they're evil. Sure, I agree that they're not so bad, but, you know, um, if you don't understand, for example, those kind of people would need to read your books first yes. before they join some NGO. Yeah, they'd need to figure out that they're actually part of the soft power tactic. Yeah, they're being manipulated largely. Postmodern uh, Imperialism, Geopolitics, and the Great Games by Eric Wahlberg. This is a very good book. Very interesting yeah. read. Well, yes. thank you, Pierre, for... Yes, absolutely. People, our, our listeners definitely should read this book if they want to understand it on a broad scale going back, you know, 100, 150 years to understand the world that we're living in today. And your second book, which I haven't read yet, but it's called From Postmodernism to Postsecularism. I get the impression that it's basically, it's a good explanation of Islam, Islamic culture and civilization and where it came from and where it is today and where it might be going. And how it uh, is definitely... Uh a threat to uh, imperialism, and, but yeah. it's also, uh, it, it's not a threat to people like us. And no. it's uh, uh, a way, uh, uh, an appreciation of, of Islam is essential to move out of our present uh, dead end. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Eric, we're going to uh, leave it there for this week. Thank you very much for, for being on. It's been great. You've been a, a font of wisdom and information. Um, and maybe we'll have you on well, again. Well, thank you so much for having me, Joe, and I uh, just uh, encourage people, if you'd like to see more of my writings, uh, it's just my name.com, EricWalberg.com. Yes, Eric Wahlberg. Just print Eric that in. W-A-L. Yep, absolutely. There's two books available on your website there. Okay, Eric, uh, thanks again, and thanks to our listeners and to our callers, and next week we're going to be interviewing journalist and author, Greg Pallast, He's, uh, we're going to have him on talk about the Exxon Valdez disaster, billionaire bandits, and Chavismo. So make sure you tune in for that. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Keep in touch. We will. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.